So, Rusana, this week's episode is uh, an interview I've recorded for the fall series at the Russian East European Eurasian Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, every semester, I do a series. Longtime listeners will certainly be familiar with this, but this semester's series is entitled "The Long Soviet Seventies." And in this, I'm in this series, I'm looking at a some of the new scholarship that's talking about the 1970s and reevaluating it. And really at the point of, of thinking about the Soviet Union and its interconnections in, with the world and the dynamism, particularly in the cultural sphere that we see in the 1970s. And this week's episode is uh, the first event, which was entitled Moscow, Not Paris or Accra, African Students in the USSR. Like I said, this period of the 1970s is commonly referred to as stagnation um, and also or ironically. We hear a lot about how in Russia today, there's nostalgia for the Soviet Union, um, you know, people's memories, particularly people, I think, who are of an older generation who had their young and formative years in the 1970s. They kind of look back on their youth with, you know, kind of glassy eyes. Uh, but it's, it's a bit ironic that the, the period which has been commonly labeled as stagnation is also the, the period in which people seem to be reflecting on in terms of you know, quote unquote, nostalgia. What, what do you think about this nostalgia for the USSR? And I honestly wouldn't mind to live in that decade. Uh, I think for a lot of young people today around the world, Russia or the US, the volatility and the precariousness of our lives is, uh, you know, really hard to digest. So I wouldn't mind to live in um, the so-called stagnant period of the Soviet history and enjoy uh, benefits, free education, free health care, and have a job lined up and not worry about any material concerns. So my, my parents went to college in the 1970s, and of course they remember that period uh, with uh, a lot of warmth, and they have very um, fond memories of their youth. They probably, yes, sometimes my mom would say that it might have been boring or predictable, you know, in terms of your future, it's kind of known. And both the media and the life around you kind of confirm that. But other than that, I think, um, yeah, they again enjoyed the material stability and um, security of their lives. Yeah, and nostalgia... Uh, to be honest, I approach this term with caution. This is a term very commonly used in post-socialist literature. However, I feel like there is a slippage between an academic use of the term and a popular use of the term. Because it's such a popular term, I feel like in uh, um, even in academic discourses, it's kind of taken as a given, right? And what happens when you think about, oh, Soviet people are nostalgic about their past, there is a certain kind of patronizing attitude that shines through that kind of usage. Because a lot of times the argument is, well, people who live in the post-Soviet space, they never had a public reckoning of their problematic past. They never had an open discussion of, well, how should we live and how should we move forward with this legacy? And because of that, because there is no public reckoning, people turn 
to this nostalgic feeling for the past uncritically, right? So in a way, I feel like nostalgia infantilizes people as not being able to deal with their past as adults, as like someone in Germany would deal with it, right? I'm not sure. Well, I don't know much about this history, but my sense is that term nostalgia is oftentimes an ascriptive term. So that's not something that people in Russia say or would use themselves to describe their relationship to the past. When it is ascriptive, I think it might be unwarranted because it does not capture the complexity of what people are actually experiencing. It doesn't capture the complexity of their relationship to their past. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, and I think, too, um, for some reason, I think the discussion of nostalgia amongst Russians, let's say just specifically people from the Russian Federation for, say, the Soviet past, you know, it's for some reason it's it's seen as abnormal where I think you know, people, it's mostly people who are just, ref I think a lot of times reflecting on how they grew up, things they were used to. And I also think it's, it's also a, co a commentary on, just as you said from the beginning, like the volatility of the present and a sense that, well, you know, when I was younger, it wasn't like that, right? It was more, it was more stable. It was, it was more innocent, you know, it, all of these things. And so, and, and I don't see that any way abnormal than anyone else. I mean, hell, I do that. <laughs> right. So, you know, but I think I think when it comes to when it comes because the, the Soviet past, as you said, is so politicized um, because there it hasn't been kind of a discussion to kind of sort out all of the, you know, so-called good and so-called bad. It's it's given this this meaning of like, oh, you know, people are longing for you know, this sort of system and they're not, they can't, they're not good, you know, liberals or good individuals or something like this. And they're kind of stuck in this paternalistic mode. It really fits into this idea of the Sovak that we hear repeatedly, um, particularly among certain uh, Russian intellectuals and others. And another problem that I have with nostalgia is that it presumes a certain um, contemplation of the past, right? But it does not indicate any kind of action. So we might long for the past that is gone, but, you know, that, that stops at the stage of a feeling. Whereas what I'm observing around me is that people are drawing on the past in order to... Um, change their present or imagine a certain kind of future for themselves. So there's a lot of action in, in their relationship with their past, with their Soviet past. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova. Uh, the SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to 
If you'd like to support this podcast, please go to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the table of rank. So, Rusana, why don't you uh, introduce our guest? Sure. Konstantin Katsikioris is a senior researcher at the Institute of World History at Charles University in Prague. He is researching the relations between the socialist countries and the global south, international communism, African socialism, the history of education and development, and the history of federalism. Here's Konstantin Katsikioris. Your research focuses on foreign students in the USSR, specifically students from sub-Saharan Africa. And I'm always curious to ask people, you know, what, what got you interested in this subject? How did you come to it? Well, thank you for the question. And thank you, first and foremost, very much for the invitation. I, I, I'm really pleased to be the first in this series of podcasts. And thanks to the University of Pittsburgh as well and to our audience. So, yes, this the first question is how uh, did I come to this topic is, <laughs> is indeed the first question people ask when they learn that I am Greek. Ah, yes, especially, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> how does this strange thing uh, happen uh, that the Greek studies the relations between the Soviet Union or Eastern Europe and, and Africa? <laughs> so, well, when I was a PhD student in international history in France, I read Odarni Westland and the Global Cold War. And... Uh, and also some other authors, French authors, who had written about the relations between the Soviet Union and the South. First and foremost, the great historian Marc Ferro, who passed away a couple of months ago, but also political scientists like and others uh, who were also interested because of uh, the influence of the Soviet Union over former French colonies. So I got interested into the top, in, the, in this topic, and but I think it was also a question of common sense. I asked myself the question, uh, uh, also from the readings that from newspapers, so I said that something important happened in in these international relations between the Soviet Union and colonial and post-colonial Africa. I realized that there was no no literature other than political sciences, and there was also there there, there existed also only writings. Um, by journalists, which are very good sometimes. So I decided to, to begin this research in Moscow and to pursue it also in Africa. So the answer is that I found <laughs> the topic very interesting, and I still believe that it's a very interesting topic because we have two parts that had very few relations earlier, and something important happens in the 50s and the 60s with the access, accession to independence of so many countries, and the, this spectacular change in the political geography of the world, and the relations with the Soviet Union and the other countries of the Eastern Bloc, and the socialist countries, also with Yugoslavia and China, which was... And Cuba. Um, I, but what, you know, why, I mean, I'll give you my own, like, interest in this, right, is is it stemmed from the idea that, you know, here you have a, a Soviet Union or Russia more broadly, uh, and it's very few relationships or ties to the African continent or African countries or African peoples. Um, there are some, but they're not very, you know, market, marketed is, is for other places. And of course, the, the thing that intrigued me is this, you know, Africans going to the Soviet Union and these two disparate peoples coming together. So I, I'd like to ask, you know, what was it specifically like why Africans 
for and, and as opposed to other students, which are, you know, Chinese, for example, uh, why African students? Why specifically Africa? Well, in my PhD, there is also a part about uh, students uh, from North Africa and the Middle East, so both are into the PhD. Well, I, I, uh, I was not very smart, and I think that <laughs> I wanted to do a lot of things. It was really big for a PhD. So I was interested not only uh, in students from Sub-Saharan Africa, but also in Syrians, uh, Lebanese students, uh, Iraqis. So I think that these two regions, Sub-Saharan Africa and uh, North Africa and the Middle East were the biggest sending regions from the non-communist world. So that's why both were into the PhD. When we go, when we look at Asia, um, of course, there were in the 50s and the early 60s, there were students from China, later from socialist countries of Asia, Vietnam, Mongolia, but few Asians from other countries. So the bulk of students from the South came from Africa and um, the Middle East. So I chose these two uh, regions. <laughs> I see. I see. So yeah, let's talk about like why the Soviet government opens its universities uh, to foreign students in the 50s and 60s. Now we know, you know, there were students studying in the Soviet Union all the, all the way beginning in the 1920s. They were mostly students involved in various communist movements. But here in the in the post in the during Cold War period, post war period, you have just students. It's not necessarily people involved in in communism. So why why do they open the doors? Yes, so this is uh, what I, what I began saying earlier. So it is um, the easiest answer is to say that for the same reasons, like the United States or France, West Germany, Great Britain did the same. They they wanted to establish uh, very good relations with the countries acceding to independence. They they were aware, of course, of the fact that these countries did not have enough people with academic uh, training to run the affairs of the country, to work as officials, um, civil servants, uh, assume responsibilities uh, in the newly independent country. So they wanted to, to, to provide education to those people, having in mind that through training them, they will also establish, they will be in good terms. They will establish good uh, relations with uh, the new elite that will run uh, the affairs of the country. So, so, but, so why would an African uh, student go to the Soviet Union? Like, what was the draw for them? And what were they looking to find? From the African side of uh, the connection, or, or, of course, students were primarily interested in getting education, acad academic training free of charge. And the offer of scholarships by the Soviet Union and other countries uh, it was an amazing opportunity for them to um, study at the university and return back home, hopefully, and have a very good job, a good career, professional career, and perhaps a political career. Did they come from a particular uh, class background? Did there, there's, is there some kind of thread that you can pull through their backgrounds that, that stands out? We have to look carefully at its case study and its country. It depends. When they come from Niger, for example, and they are members of the underground movement, the Savaba, no, they, they came from what they used to say in France, le petit peuple, poor people. So the, these students from Niger, Le Niger. So, uh, by the way, there is a very good book by uh, Klaas van Falraven about this movement and the students who went to the Eastern Bloc. 
otherwise, as you have also written in your own research, uh, there were students who were from middle and upper class background from several countries, especially in the early 60s. So there were some students from uh, the, the small uh, but important elite of uh, African countries, uh, people whose parents were already in, in the, uh, the administration, holding offices, uh, along with British and French employee, employees, and, you know, who were ready to take up the torch from the Westerners. Uh, so people f- who came from cities, uh, they had attended the um, secondary level education. It was a minority, but th- there existed also these, let's say, group of students. So we have to be careful from uh, when we look, it's hard to generalize. So yes, it's a complicated <laughs> group of people. When Okay, so I, I kind of, I'm curious about the whole, to some extent, the recruitment process. So, I mean, because I, I guess just as a general thing, like the idea that an African student would see, you know, how would they see an opportunity or even look into the opportunity of getting a scholarship and in, in studying in the Soviet Union? How were they selected from the African and then the Soviet side to go study? And, and how, what was that process like? There were uh, two uh, ways uh, of getting a scholarship to go to the Soviet Union. The, the first one was uh, uh, to get a state scholarship through the governments. There were bilateral agreements between the Soviet Union and the African governments, providing that a number of uh, students every year uh, will be sent to the Soviet Union. Uh, so what happened is that students, for example, Ghanaian students or students from Mali, applied to the Ministry of uh, Education of Ghana, and they were selected there. Uh, they had to fulfill the, uh, the academic criteria, but once they fulfilled the, the academic criteria and they were selected by their own government, they, they were sent to the Soviet Union. So this was the biggest group of students who were selected through the state channel, let's, let us say. But there was also another group of students who had their scholarships through leftist organizations, trade unions, Marxist-inspired parties, unions, student unions, uh, through societies of friendship, cultural societies of friendship with the Soviet Union. So they were the minority. Usually they were in opposition to the African government. And this was a problem for these students, but they made up uh, a significant percentage, especially uh, in countries uh, with which the Soviet Union did not have good relations. There was also a group of students, a tiny minority of students, who came from colonial countries, for example, for the Portuguese colonies. Uh, They were sent by the liberation movements. Hmm. That's interesting. So in some of the the traditions of uh, students going to the Soviet Union from the 20s and 30s continued to carry on in in the post-war period. I thought that it was mostly through these government agreements rather than this, you know, leftist organizations and liberation movements. Um, That's actually quite interesting that they're still doing that. So, you know, these African students from a variety of different post-colonial and colonial countries arrive in the Soviet Union and what is life like for them? I mean, they, they stand out because of their color. They're a different racial group. They're a small minority. You know, Russians don't have, and, and Soviet people in general don't have a lot of, you know, exposure or interaction with African peoples. So what is life like for them? 
But it was not easy. Adaptation in the Soviet Union was not easy for African students. First, they had to learn the language. So they spent at least one year, usually not more, but for some students it was more, at the preparatory faculties to learn uh, Russian. They were very successful in general in learning the language. It was, of course, not very easy to adapt in the, in the student conditions of the Soviet Union, you know, living in the um, dormitories, which in the 60s were not, were not very uh, in a good condition. Uh, uh, and there, were, there was not enough space, so students used to live uh, by four in each uh, room. But this was the disadvantage. But the advantage was that they, they were speaking Russian and they learned uh, Russian. The weather was not... Uh, <laughs> they were not familiar with <laughs> uh, the weather in the Soviet Union. That's why many, uh, usually Africans, were sent uh, to Soviet Ukraine. Yes, while students from Eastern Europe were more often, you know, in Leningrad, uh, St. Petersburg today, but Africans were dispersed. There were many Africans in Soviet Ukraine. And in fact, in the 70s, in the late 70s, you have more African students in Kharkov and then also in Kiev and Odessa than in Soviet Russia. Now, now we know that in Moscow, at least, there's the um, Lumumba University, People's Friendship University, uh, which is a high concentration mostly for foreign students. Uh, you do have some Soviet students that go there. And then you have these other places, whether it's Leningrad or Kharkiv or elsewhere. Were they, were they part of, the, of Soviet student life in general or were they kept somewhat separate from, from it? Well, in many, in, uh, from archival evidence I have seen in many universities, there were students who were very active in student life and participating in the friendship committees uh, and clubs of uh, the schools or uh, going on excursions with uh, their peers uh, coming from all over the world. Uh, having, there were international f- friendships. Uh, so there was integration. It is not easy to provide quantitative uh, evidence about you know, how many uh, students were integrated. You know, sociological research was not possible in the Soviet Union. So we can judge from accounts written by faculty members or Soviet consumer members, uh, or by the, um, uh, uh, the documents written by students, uh, uh, or, the, or by their memoirs. But there was, there was integration uh, of the students into student life. It was not uh, very easy uh, to... In, uh, to integrate into the Soviet society, even though many students did it successfully and they got married to Soviet women and they created families also. Now, uh, some of the work, that, and you've done some of this work yourself and, and other scholars have looked at, of course, the racial question of the experience of Africans and the, how they inter- their interactions with Soviet citizens, instances of racism. There's even a couple of, there's cases of, uh, you know, beatings and there's at least, well, there's one high profile case of a death. Um, what was that experience like on, in terms of race and racism, but also just, you know, also everyday interactions with Soviet people on the street and other places in the country? Well, the, the, there were uh, incidents of uh, verbal and physical violence against uh, African students and especially against uh, those coming from sub-Saharan Africa which uh, clearly indicates that in, in these incidents there was uh, a, the racial dimension and there was racism in the Soviet Union against black students. Uh, there were uh, many incidents of violence and uh, a number of students were found dead 
under uh, mysterious circumstances. In Moscow, in Soviet Azerbaijan, in Soviet Ukraine, there were several incidents. In most cases, the students reacted and protested, uh, requesting the Soviet authorities to shed light on the incidents and to punish uh, the culprits. They demonstrated. There is a, a nice study about the demonstration in Moscow by Julie Hessler. Um, and also, Maxima Tusevich has written uh, has uh, a lot about the students' memoirs. So it is impossible to say that there was no racism in the Soviet Union. Of course, there existed racism in the Soviet Union. But it is we have to uh, pay attention to see if it was clearly racism or xenophobia against the foreigners in general. Uh, coming to our country, eating our bread and taking our scholarships, our places at universities, the dormitories and all, all this. So, well, maybe this is a good like to, to think about what about so in the comparison to between, say, some of the students from the Middle East, from Arab countries and African countries, did was their experience and this goes along with the point like xenophobia versus racism and the fine line between the two. With, were their experience somewhat similar or were they different? Or what was, how did their experiences compare? I think this is an excellent question because here we can see the difference. Students from North Africa did not suffer from racist behaviors and incidents as much as students from Sub-Saharan Africa. So that's why there was clearly a racial dimension in this. Even though they also pointed to hostile attitudes by Soviet citizens against them several times. Now, once again, those students from North Africa who came from Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia who spoke French, for them it was easier to integrate into the Soviet society. Speaking French, uh, going traveling to Paris made everything easier. So somehow, you know, they brought also French culture <laughs> in the Soviet Union. It was not the same for Egyptians or uh, Iraqis. Now, a lot of, you know, people assume, I think it's safe to say that, you know, the Soviets are allowing these students in to study uh, you know, because they want to indoctrinate them, right? They want to spread not just their own diplomatic influence, which is clear um, and, and something that many nations are doing, but specifically ideological. Um, and, and you do in some memoirs, you do in, in, in um, journalistic accounts, you do have complaints by African students about uh, Soviet, you know, ideology and learning about Marxism, Leninism, et cetera. So what was their educational experience like, ver, you know, versus learning about a subject that they're interested in, whether it be medicine or whatever, versus, say, the ideological component? How much of each was part of their their education experience? Mm -hmm. Well, in general, from the documents I have read in the archives and from discussions with and interviews and informal discussions with former students, they, they appreciated the, the training uh, at most Soviet schools. And they always argued that training was very good. And there were many advantages in the socialist countries in the training that they offered. For example, practical training took place each semester. The study programs were longer than in the West. Uh, academics, uh, faculty members were available to help the students uh, to cope with the difficulties. So there were many advantages. So the training was, uh, was good. And it was, of course, uh, free of charge. <laughs> we should not forget this. <laughs> there was also indoctrination. Uh, there was uh, one class each semester, in each semester, with political content. It could be scientific atheism, 
but also Marxist philosophy from the Soviet point of view, not from the French one or from the African. <laughs> so, yes, the history of the Soviet Union was taught uh, and... So there, there, there was, uh, it was, uh, you know, the, the Soviets said that this is, uh, this is our political culture and you, if you study here, you have to learn a few things about us. And so it is legitimate. Uh, but at the same time, it was also, we can argue that it was indoctrination for many reasons. You know, uh, this, to go back to this question of like the ethnic racial uh, question, you know, we shouldn't assume that African students are some sort of homogenous block. Right. There's ethnic differences and conflicts within African students in general. You also have ethnic, religious and other political conflicts. Um, can you talk a bit about that within, say, the African students themselves? Because uh, I know that um, I remember in the Comsmall archive, they have student organizations and they tend to be national. Right. You have like a Stu Sudanese one and you have others. So what was the relationship between Africans in, in this context? This is also a very, a very good question, because we, we tend to believe that all Nigerian students uh, were together in the Nigerian Union of Students in the Soviet Union. But it, this was not the case, because Nigeria, as a post-colonial country, is composed uh, by plenty of nationalities. And the biggest nationalities, the, the Igbos, the, the, the Fulani, Hausa Fulani from the north, uh, and the Yorubas, of course, uh, they had separate organizations. Or, you know, vote in the, in the student union was uh, ethnic vote. It was not uh, ideological. There were also ideological uh, uh, groups, uh, you know, transcending the ethnic groups. But the ethnic factor uh, is there. And in fact, in the case of Nigeria, during the, the war in Biafra, this became a, a very big problem because students from Biafra created their own union. They, they, they supported the, the independence of Biafra. This happened not only in the Nigerian Student Union, this happened also in other unions. In the Kenyan Union, you see that students are divided in ethnic lines. In the Sudanese one, as you mentioned, there was a tiny minority of people from South Sudan, today the independent country of South Sudan, and students from the, the Arabic part of uh, the northern part of the Sudan. Of Sudan. And, and how did the Soviet authorities and, and university officials manage this situation? Did, or did they, did they have to manage it at all? They had to manage it, especially because, for example, during the Biafran War, there were violent conflicts between the separatists and their opponents. So there were conflicts also in other groups between Arabs and Kurds, between different groups, also Ethiopians uh, from different regions of Ethiopia. So... They had, of course, they, 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 they had also to tolerate, to some extent, the, the unofficial existence of uh, ethnic organizations. So we have to see case by case. I mean, if we go a little bit in the Middle East and we look at Lebanon, Lebanese students, it was the same there. You have Lebanese Armenians. <laughs> of course, they tolerated them. <laughs> they, well, they, sent them they sent all these students, all, most of them, in Soviet Armenia to study. So they took this ethnic dimension into account in their policies uh, towards the students. Yeah, this actually goes to a question that's being asked in the question and answer, and that is, uh, you know, was there a deliberate policy uh, among Soviet authorities to kind of concentrate students in various areas? Like, for example, you mentioned, you know, because of the weather conditions, 
you know, a lot of African students were sent to Kharkov, or in this case of Lebanese students, they're going to Armenia. Was there a certain uh, more thought like that put into placing students in particular places to either be with, you know, you know, Kenyans with more Kenyans, for example, or in conditions that were maybe more conducive for their assimilation? I have not seen any evidence about, you know, you know, bringing all Kenyans to this city or all Algerians to another place. So on the contrary, I think that the objective was to really to have a little bit of everything, every country in African country, in Tashkent or in, in Odessa, in Kiev, so that you really, this internationalist spirit develops among students. No, they were free to, to choose their field of studies and they were even free to, to change at the beginning of their studies and to move from one field to another. Uh, I have seen cases of people who started from mathematics and then they, they decided to study cinema. <laughs> yes, and, and, and they did it and they managed to do it. So yes, yes. Right, yeah, regular, regular university life as we know. <laughs> now, when they return to their home countries, um, what did they do? What, where did this education take them? And in their own, what was their life like after returning from the Soviet Union? Again, this is a, a complicated story because uh, we are talking about those who returned in the 60s, uh, in the 70s, uh, or in the 80s uh, during the economic crisis uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, not uh, in the oil-producing countries that much. And then uh, uh, who were the students who returned? Because there were students who uh, uh, went to the Soviet Union under uh, a socialist regime and returned back when the regime had been ousted. <laughs> it was not easy for them. So there are many, uh, uh, many factors. Uh, many uh, at play that condi which condition the, the careers uh, play the role in the careers of the students. In general, we can argue that uh, those who return in uh, the first uh, cohorts of students of returnees, they had plenty of opportunities to um, make a, a very good career in the administration, at, in the education, uh, and even in politics. Then it became, over time, it became difficult because of the economic crisis. Uh, still, for example, there, there is one group of students, those doctors, uh, physicians, doctors. For them, it was, it was never a problem to, to find a job. Uh, they, <laughs> they could also migrate uh, somewhere else and work as uh, doctors. Uh, so there are different stories regarding them. We have to also look at the, the countries. It is, you know, returnees, those who returned back to, to Senegal, where the situation was more stable, it was better for them. Those who returned back to Ethiopia, when the regime, the Marxist regime was collapsing, there it was difficult for them to build their career. First question is, is, you know, since this series is about the 1970s, the long 1970s, um, what does this, you know, you looking at African students in Soviet life, um, what, how do you understand this period uh, through the eyes of this experience of African students? What are your, some of your takeaways of life in the Soviet Union at this time? 
I think that was a life-changing experience, an exciting experience for most of them, even, even though the adaptation was very difficult. The, the challenges, there were many challenges uh, from, you know, succeeding in pursuing successfully studies, but adapting uh, in the new conditions, getting the degree, and, and even more. So, but from their point of view, uh, it was it was uh, uh, a great chance and a, a very a very good period of their life uh, for most of them, at least as they remember, you know, in the m- memories. It was a period that you know they the, the, uh, saw many possibilities for themselves for their future. They they realized that they they were privileged. And they were indeed privileged, you know, having a scholarship studying and knowing that returning back, you, you, you normally you belong to the elite. And, and what about life in the Soviet Union? I mean, considering this question of, you know, as I began this idea that we see this period as a period of stagnation, um, you know, how do you understand the Soviet experience through, through these students? Well, the Soviet experience, it, it, I think it confirms what you said at the beginning, that it was not uh, really a period of stagnation. It was, uh, on the contrary, it was a period of internationalism, uh, Soviet internationalism, in the sense that, you know, developing relations with foreign countries. So this, in the 70s as well, uh, we see that these, the relations between Africa and the Soviet Union did not stagnate. On the contrary, they developed in many ways. And education was uh, clearly one, one field where we see the development. So when it comes to to the South, the Global South, and uh, the Third World, and Africa. So the 70s, it's also, uh, for the Soviets, is uh, a period of uh, increased uh, engagement with with these regions of the world. We have to remind also that uh, it was um, successful, it was a liberation of uh, uh, the Portuguese colonies, which increased the influence of the Eastern Bloc. There were, of course, setbacks, uh, for example, in Egypt, that Egypt stepped back from the close relationship it had earlier with the Soviet Union, but at the same time, there is Algeria, which uh, pursues the relations with uh, the Soviet Union. So overall, it is in during which we see an expansion uh, of the relations. Uh, in the second half of the 70s, we can also see this with Ethiopia. Another overarching situation here is, of course, the Cold War, right? And and the, the, the spread of trying to have influence with the African continent as well as the other, the Third World War broadly, is also part of the larger Cold War. Um, how did these fit into the Cold War? Because I know, for example, some of the scandals that occur where you have African students and they leave uh, and they, they speak to media and they, they get sucked into this Cold War contest between the West and the Soviet bloc. So where do, where do you situate this experience within the Cold War? I think that without the Cold War, it wouldn't be the same. I mean, the Cold War played a, a role in, in for the Soviets to to increase their assistance to Africa, and it is clearly uh, mentioned in documents uh, written by Soviet diplomats that here there is uh, a, a war between the socialist countries and uh, the capitalist countries, which block, which side will train more Africans. So they they re- write this in their documents. So they believe that in, the, in that context of the rivalry with the capitalist countries, uh, it was important to do this thing, to pursue the training of students from Africa and Asia and Latin America. So that's why without the Cold War, these relations wouldn't be the same. 
it, they wouldn't be the same. And these, the, the Soviet assistance would, wouldn't be as big as it was. As regards the experience of students and how, how we can you know, think of them in the, in the context of the Cold War, they were aware of the rivalry. The students were, well, very smart. <laughs> students are very smart, always. And so they, they knew the stakes, they knew the conflicts, they could you know, exploit them and play one side against the other and uh, get a scholarship from one side and then write a PhD somewhere else uh, or, you know, blackmailing <laughs> that they, <laughs> if, if our student, if our peer is expelled from the Soviet Union, we will publish this in the journal, etc., etc. And, and did the Soviet Sino split play a role within student life as well? It played a role, yes, because in 1962, 63, uh, 64, you know, in the middle of the split, the uh, Sino-Soviet split, there is a conflict in the Pan-African Student Union between those who support the Soviet side and the others who support the Maoists, the, uh, the, the Chinese, uh, the pro-Chinese bloc. Huh? They really infuriated the Soviet host, but they existed, they were there. And uh, in fact, the, the pro-Chinese were the same persons, generally, leading the protest against racism in the Soviet Union. Uh, so uh, this Maoist uh, group of students was also the, the group that led the protests against the Soviet, not, not always, but they played a, a very important role, arguing that, you know, for colored people, Soviet communism is like uh, the, the imperialism of Europeans, it's the same. So connecting, you know, Marxist uh, uh, political themes with uh, the racial question and saying that we prefer the Marxist the, the ideology and the views of uh, an Asian country, not of a European country like uh, you. Th this brings up another question that, that's also in, in the Q&A. And, and, and for African-Americans who went to the Soviet Union, you know, not just in the, in the pre-war, but the post-war period, they were fascinated with Central Asia, right? They wanted to see how non-Russians lived in the Soviet Union. Um, was this something like, what were, were there any relations uh, between African students or interests amongst African students with peoples from Central Asia and the Caucasus, so-called non-European uh, pe people in the Soviet Union? Well, this is something that the Soviets themselves repeated and, uh, in their propaganda, that look at our Central Asia, how uh, it developed under the Bolshevik rule and the Soviet, Soviet modernization in Central Asia, and this is a good example for your countries, etc., etc. You know, I, however, I have never seen a single African from Sub-Saharan Africa or from North Africa being uh, excited and fascinated with Central Asia. Okay. So I don't know, I don't think that anyone bought in the Soviet narrative that, you know, uh, Central Asia, it was not, people really wanted to learn more about, you know, Soviet Russia, Soviet Ukraine. Look at the, the center of uh, this empire, the most developed part of this country, not about other regions. So they were not really interested in the Caucasus. Of course, they wanted to learn a few things about these regions, especially students from North Africa. They wanted to learn about, you know, a few things about Soviet Muslims, but not more than that. Everybody wanted to be in Russia and Ukraine or in the Baltic countries. Yeah, that's interesting because there's a lot of a lot of African-American, um, you know, experiences speak about going to it's almost like a pilgrimage to Central Asia. But 
I guess that speaks to the different dynamics, right? Whereas if you're in Africa, the racial question isn't necessarily, you know, the same as as you would find, for example, of African Americans in America who live under a, you know, a racial regime. Uh, so that that at least on the surface seems to explain that difference. And this goes to another question is you you mentioned you did interviews and you spoke a little bit about how these former students uh, kind of reminisce or or reflect back on their time in the Soviet Union. Um, you know, I'd like to know a little bit more, like, especially the ones you talked to and interviewed. First off, you know, how did they, what did they think of you coming, this, you know, Greek guy asking like, so what was your time in the Soviet Union? Um, and, and what are some of the more other reflections they had on, on their, their student life there? I mean, especially since, you know, they're all young in their twenties when they're in the Soviet Union, most likely. And now they're looking back on that youth. Looking back uh, on those years, of course, they are grateful for uh, the education, the, the training they received uh, on Soviet scholarships, and they acknowledge that this was uh, important for their countries. Many of them don't have the best memories. They refer to racism in, in the Soviet Union. At the same time, they also uh, have good memories because they had good scholarships. They, it was their student life. I mean, even when the conditions are not uh, perfect, students coming, those who were from a lower class background and had a scholarship and were able to travel and uh, you know to to spend years without having material concerns this was this was very important and they are grateful for this so and what and what did they think of you well you know because themselves they know that this student migration was very important at that time they are not of course at the beginning they say what are you doing here you are a greek historian but they are not they don't find it very strange that somebody returns to this period to to try to write something and from a historical perspective so it is an important chapter of history i think because tens of thousands of students studied or nearly if i remember well yes and i think i remember well 50000 students from Africa received degrees, graduated from the Soviet Union, and uh, another 50,000 50, more from Eastern Europe. I, here's, a, here's actually a, real, a good question in the chat, too. You know, when they come back to their home countries, right, you have African students, of course, in the Soviet Union. You have them in east parts of Eastern Europe. You also have African students in the West and the continental Europe, but also a few in the United States. Um, do you have any sense when, when they got back to their respective countries? Did they kind of reflect and compare their experiences with each other? Or, I mean, even if between the people who went to the East to, say, Bulgaria, for example, I know there's a contingent of African students there versus the Soviet Union. Do you have a sense of how they evaluated each society? Yes. To some extent, the Cold War divide existed also back to Africa in the sense that those who returned with uh, Soviet degrees uh, they competed uh, for the same jobs with those who had uh, British or French or American degrees. So, and the two groups competing for the same resources, they did not always have good relations. Everybody tried to, those who were educated in the West, they, 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 they didn't believe that the Soviet degrees were good and that studies in the Soviet Union were good. And they, they accused them for many things, for being bad specialists, not qualified people. For this reason, graduates, the returnees, return students from the Soviet Union, they created alumni unions to defend their rights and to defend their professional rights and their degrees and their social capital. And so you see the competition between the two groups, uh, who will really be in this elite. That's why even those students who did not have the best experiences in the Soviet Union, 
back to their countries, it was in their interest to defend the Soviet Union and to tell very good things about the Soviet Union, the Soviet universities, the Soviet degrees, as if it's not possible that you return with a degree and you tell bad things about <laughs> your degree. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> that's that's actually very that's a very interesting point how, you know, it's if you it's not when we take we can take away, you know, say the ideologies or the experiences and because of how people understand, say, a degree from France or America or Britain versus a degree from the Soviet Union or Bulgaria, you you get sucked into that Cold War divide nonetheless, just to protect, as you said, to protect your own social capital. Um, finally, in, in thinking about this whole, this topic and the experience, what are some of the, the legacies of this exchange? I mean, it sounds, you certainly have spoken to one potential legacy, um, but is there anything that you could identify as a legacy of the Soviet third world in exchange that even continues up into the present? Well, there are uh, plenty of legacies uh, of these educational relations of the training of students uh, in the Soviet Union. For example, I'm, I'm working now with the University of uh, Johannesburg in South Africa and the Ali Masri Center for Higher Education on a book about uh, academics African academics uh, who studied in, Soviet, in the Soviet Union and uh, the Eastern Bloc. And uh, I'm interviewing engineers, scientists, uh, uh, mathematicians, and people also in uh, uh, the humanities uh, who uh, returned back after they wrote also their PhD in the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, and they became prominent but really very excellent academics. You see the list of publications is very long in very good journals, very good books, uh, and they also... Um, contributed to the development of education, the institutions in their countries, and they were active in the civil society. So these are legacies, important legacies. So the people uh, who trained in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe and returned back, they did very important things uh, for their countries, not only in academia, uh, but also in secondary education, in, in the economy of uh, the countries, in research institutes. Prominent mathematicians worked uh, in several research institutes in Algeria, for example, but also in culture, in cultural life. Numerous African filmmakers trained in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe in the Gerasimov, at the Gerasimov Institute, in the Institute of Cinema of Prague, in, at the Lodz Film School in Poland. The father of African cinema did not attend the university, but he was also trained uh, for a couple of months in the studios directly, in the, at the Gorky Studios in Moscow. Important filmmakers. So this is another legacy. There, there, there are legacies in culture, there are legacies in, uh, in education, uh, of course in politics, but you know, uh, when we only mention politics that Eduardo dos Santos, the president of Angola, was a Soviet graduate, and that's all, it's not true. It's not true. <laughs> well, here's a couple of questions in the chat, and I'm going to, of course, mention the names because you, you probably know these people since they're in your area. Uh, Natalia Telepneva, who... I've interviewed before. She was part of our series on, um, I got, got Natalia, I'm sorry, I forget, but I interviewed her about uh, African intel. Oh, it was about the archive. It was African um, intelligence, Soviet intelligence and African liberation. Um, I invite everyone to go listen to that wonderful interview. But she asked quite provocatively, based on the story of African students in the USSR, did the Soviets lose the cultural Cold War? Hello, Natalia. <laughs> so, yes, well, it's a very big question that you raise. If they lost the cultural Cold War, well, the Soviets lost the Cold War. 
And if you lose the Cold War in general, you are losing also everything, which means the cultural Cold War. But, you know, if for some reason we stop the clock history in 1987, they were not losing the Cold War, the cultural Cold War, uh, uh, when it comes to education. No, because the returnees uh, back to their countries, they were getting important positions. They started having some influence. So, but this was abruptly, uh, abruptly with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, so looking back, we can argue that they lost the Cold War. But, you know, uh, this judgment is not, it does not uh, uh, represent the reality. I think that in the 80s, of, the, the Soviet influence was still increasing through the training of people. So it is not an, a reply in general for the cultural Cold War, but only for the field of education I'm more familiar with. And here's another question from uh, Maxim Matusevich, who we all know, and you should always, if you want more on this subject, I mean, Kosia already mentioned Maxim, but you should check out his, his work on, on African students uh, and African relations with the Soviet Union. And Maxim asks... Um, how do you think this past, that is the African students in the USSR, informs Russian society's present attitudes towards race and Russia's more recent involvement on the African continent? Thank you, Maxim, for the question. You, <laughs> you, you clearly know much more than me uh, on this uh, topic. Yeah, so I, I can use, uh, I can mobilize what Maxim has written about it <laughs> to give an answer. <laughs> well. How the past uh, is still informing, to some extent, the Russian views about Africa and about this region? Well, I think that with most Russian people I have discussed, they, they believe that there was a huge uh, loss for the Soviet Union in getting involved in, in Africa, that they lost their money in uh, Ethiopia, in Algeria, in Ghana, everywhere. And, and this is true, to some extent, that they did lose the money. Of course, nobody paid back. Very few countries paid back. <laughs> <laughs> the loans that they got from the Soviet Union. And yes, because of the interruption of the relations, the, the investment of the Soviet Union was, was lost. So I think that they, they are aware of this and they think that they should not do, repeat the same mistake. And, but in terms of race, this belief, this awareness that they lost uh, a lot influences their attitudes uh, towards black students today. Even though the, the discourse is different, um, we don't talk uh, about internationalists, we, so we can argue that these people, okay, they are students, uh, many of them pay fees or we will have a different relations with them. But still, it is hard to swallow the bitter pit that the Soviet Union lost uh, a lot through its involvement in Africa. And this, in my humble view has is still haunting the, <laughs> the opinion in Russia and informs the attitudes towards race. All right. Oh, did we get one more? Oh, we did get one more question. Um, the question is, what about the individual roles of different socialist countries? You know, how much did the, the Soviets, uh, this is a good, this is a very good question. So how much did the Soviets dictate the way individual countries, for example, say Poland or Bulgaria that were receiving African students, did they um, have a, uh, did, did the Soviet government influence the Eastern Bloc countries when it came to African students? Well, there were discussions among fellow socialist countries. There was a commission, a special commission inside the Comecon, the, the, the union of uh, the Eastern Bloc countries, a special commission uh, by the um, vice ministers of education discussing uh, international education. 
And for example, it was a common decision in 1968 to make all the courses of indoctrination, political sciences, etc., to make them compulsory because until 1968 they were optional, uh, not only in the Soviet Union, also in Czechoslovakia and in East Germany. So they became compulsory after following a discussion of the ministers, vice ministers of education in the Comecon. In other discussions, it was decided, for example, that Czechoslovakia uh, should uh, uh, create a university like the Patrice Lumumba University university in Moscow. Czechoslovakia had a similar uh, institution, uh, but they closed it in 1974. It was the university of the 17th of November. It was created one year after the Patrice Lumumba. So there are many discussions uh, about how to manage the training of students and uh, detailed discussions and how this what how we can use this cooperation for our relations with uh, African and Middle Eastern countries. There was coordination. But at the same time, there were also disagreements and different paths. In Hungary, for example, one could study also in English and pay the fees, pay fees at the university. That was Konstantin Katsikioris. Konstantin Katsikioris is a senior researcher in the Institute of World History at Charles University in Prague. He is researching the relations between the socialist countries and the global south, international communism, African socialism, the history of education and development, and the history of federalism. So, you know, as I uh, mentioned in the interview, I actually have a personal uh, interest in this subject. And I've even published an article about it, looking at how African uh, students saw themselves in relationship to the Soviet Soviet people in the Soviet Union. Um, What were some of your takeaways from this interview? I found this episode absolutely fascinating because I don't know much about the subject. So one of the things that struck me is that there was this divide between pro-Soviet students and pro-Chinese students um, when the Sino-Soviet split happened. And the ones who were Maoists, who supported uh, the Chinese government, they were the ones protesting against racism in the Soviet Union. So, yeah, that was just kind of like an interesting fact. Uh, Another thing uh, was about the divides between ethnic groups among students coming from the same country. So so we shouldn't think about Nigerians as this homogenous group, right? So we have Fulani, we have Yoruba, and they might not agree with each other, and they might need their separate organizations and places to um, get together, etc. And the Soviet government had to kind of mediate and facilitate those processes, which I'm sure was not a very easy job to do. Um, Yeah, and so another thing was uh, the cultural legacy of these exchanges, right? So he talked about filmmakers and artists, et cetera. And, you know, it really got me to thinking about what it means to send 100,000 people to study in the Soviet Union and then all of them come back having that educational and experience and that exchange with not only Soviet students but also other international students and then they come back and become the administrative intellectual and artistic elites the issue of the issue of the divide between the Maoists and the pro-Soviet students was interesting for me, mostly because of the way 
they inserted, as you said, that the Maoists tend to be, at least what Constantine said, the Maoists are the ones who tended to organize a lot of the protests against racism in the Soviet Union. And what I really found interesting about that is how uh, for these students, Maoism better represented a, a Marxism that allowed for a space for race. And I've actually heard this mentioned in other contexts. Um, I was doing some research a month or so ago, and I found an audio clip of this African-American philosopher giving a talk in the United States. He was responding to one of these racist incidents in the Soviet Union that became international news. And he said just, well, you know, these black students, they know the, the Russians are white, <laughs> which I thought was really fascinating. And and so the fact that they they Maoism provided a different, you know, Marxism of people of color, essentially. I thought that was really interesting. Um, in terms of the cultural legacy of that, that I, I thought one of the things I thought was really fascinating was how the alumni of these Soviet universities back back in Africa in their African countries, they def in order to maintain the value of their cultural capital, they essentially have to, you know. They, they defend their studies, even if even if they, you know, had a horrible time, they still are kind of they have this impulse to defend it because to say, you know, my my time in the Soviet Union was worthless is basically you're depowering the cultural capital that you've accumulated. Well, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm uh, joined by Rusana Novikova. Uh, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast, please share it on social media. Tell your friends, your family, anyone who's interested uh, to listen in. And you can always feel free to drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or on the srbpodcast.org website and let us know what you think of the show what works, what doesn't work, what sh we should do differently. And as always, if you like the SRB podcast, we'd love your support. The SRB podcast and all of its various programming is a nonprofit educational endeavor. It relies on the support of individuals like you and educational institutions to keep it completely free without any paywalls or advertisements. And we you know, strive to keep it that way. So please uh, go to srbpodcast.org and become a monthly patron by joining the SRB Table of Ranks. Until next week, bye.